0: Welcome to My African Aesthetic, a podcast that interrogates the African aesthetic in African architecture and design.
1: On this podcast, you'll hear about the work, philosophy, and design process of African architects and designers practicing in Africa and the diaspora.
0: My name is Yunis Nanzala Shumaker. I'm a Ugandan architect and designer living and working in Norway. And my name is Penina Achayo-Laker.
1: I am a Ugandan graphic designer, researcher, and educator living and practicing in the USA.
0: Our podcast features conversations with designers working to provide architecture and design solutions for Africa.
1: We would like this to become a platform where our guests share their knowledge and experiences on designing in the diverse, hybrid and dynamic socio-economic, cultural and political African context.
0: We are looking forward to embarking on this journey with you.
1: Our guest today is Professor Mugendi Mutareda, a Transdisciplinary Industrial Designer, Consultant, Educator and Researcher. He studied in Kenya, the US, India, and South Africa, and holds a postgraduate qualification in both industrial design and universal design. Professor Mugendi has taught in Kenya, Botswana, South Africa, and Sweden, and is passionate about various expressions of socially conscious design, including design thinking, slash human-centered design, design designerly strategies for mitigating climate change, design for social innovation and sustainability, distributed renewable energy, indigenous knowledge systems, participatory slash co-design, and universal slash inclusive design. Professor Mugendi has a special interest in the pivotal role of design thinking in advancing the developmental agenda on the African continent. He is a founding member of the Network of African Designers, NAD, and affiliated with a number of other international networks, including the Association of Designers of India, who are focused on design within industrially developing world contexts. He is also the former president and executive board member of the World Design Organization, formerly known as the International Council of Societies of Industrial Design. His work with the World Design Organization strives to advance the quest of the industrial design profession to resolve wicked problems in diverse contexts. Professor Mugedi currently serves on the design faculty at Machakos University in Kenya, and is also the co-founder and chief design officer of Holos Creative Solutions, a Kenyan-based design consultancy committed to co-creating socially conscious design solutions that celebrate Africa design and innovation. Okay, so Professor Mugendi, thank you so much for joining Yulis and I on this episode of the My African Aesthetic Podcast. We're really excited to have you here.
2: Thank you. Um, I look forward to having this conversation with you.
1: Fantastic. So just to get started, um, Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about where you grew up. Uh, maybe you can highlight any specific experiences that have that uh, have helped shape your upbringing. Uh, uh, thanks, Anina.
2: Um, I actually was born in Kenya. Uh, there's a little town uh, known as Chogoria, which is at the foothills of Mount Kenya on the Eastern slope. And um, later on, I had the great uh, privilege of uh, traveling to the U.S. With, uh, uh, a young child. In fact, I started my schooling in the U.S. because my dad happened to have been on a scholarship to study there, so the family joined him and um, moved back to Kenya to finish off my uh, uh, upper primary school, if I can call it that, and then I joined high school and even my first degree in Kenya, the University of Nairobi. So I studied uh, design and uh, at some point I worked both in the private and public sector. Got a Commonwealth scholarship to study industrial design, which took me to Mumbai, India, at uh, the Industrial Design Center of the Indian Institute of Technology, IIT. Uh, Did my master's in industrial design, returned to Kenya, and taught at the University of Nairobi. In fact, I'm the one who set up an industrial design program as well as the interior design program at the University of Nairobi. And at some point, Moved to Botswana where we started a new industrial design school at the University of Botswana, and then later on to Cape Town where I established the master's and PhD programs in design, uh, in industrial design in uh, Cape Town. And only just recently, I was in South Africa or Southern Africa for 18 years. so I just got back to Kenya at the end of 2018, and now presently. Um, I'm um, at uh, a small university known as Machakos University. just uh, about 65 kilometers to the south of our capital city of Nairobi. Uh, just to mention also while I was in Cape Town, I did my PhD in uh, universal design, uh, which looked at the needs of uh, uh, various people. I believe in Europe, we call it design for all. Uh, and in the UK specifically, it would be inclusive design. So that, that's about me.
1: Wow, that that's a it's a very impressive uh, sort of resume you have there. But I'm also struck by how much you have travelled from such an early age. If I could take you back to uh, those early days of primary school, you mentioned moving to the US with your dad um, because he was pursuing his PhD there, and then moving back to to Kenya. At what point did you start to realize that design one was was an area that you were interested in studying and when when were you exposed to this notion of design?
2: Uh, that's a good question because um, I only got to hear of design when I was uh, in the last years of my uh, high school, I was in banana school in Nairobi and um, it was our art teacher, fine art teacher, who actually told us about uh, design. and. Um, because I did fine art and also did woodwork and metalwork, and uh, she discovered that I was pretty good in the you know woodwork and metalwork, and suggested that if I combined that with fine art, it would lead me to design. Uh, at that point, I uh, was it actually very clear. I just knew that I liked tinkering around, and at home I was notorious for you know opening things up and uh, you know putting them back together again. Sometimes they worked, sometimes they didn't. But uh, mm-hmm. I'd have described myself then as uh, incurably inquisitive, and I'm mm-hmm. glad that my siblings and my parents, um, you know, were forbearing. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been as um, effective as an industrial designer because that's what we really do. Um, so going to mm-hmm. the university is when I uh, then did I did its design, and I realized that I actually like the three dimensional work much more than uh, say two D visual communication or graphic design or fashion design. I found that I enjoyed the three-dimensional work more. And one of my uh, teachers who became my mentor, uh, a lecturer, uh, suggested that maybe I'd like to look into industrial design or product design. So that was when the seed was planted for me to ultimately move towards um, uh, industrial design.
0: Hmm. What 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 were the thoughts around... What were the thoughts around pursuing a career in design about the time you were studying design in, in Africa? Uh,
2: yeah, that's a good question, Eunice, because what happened is um, at about the age of 14 or 15, uh, we had to select certain subjects in high school. And I remember uh, my choice then was to do fine art because I wanted to eventually go, get into uh, you know design, and uh I had a sit down with my dad because the parent had to sign off uh, whatever choice one made and I remember my dad was quite puzzled he's a pharmacist uh by training, and uh he he thought I should go into medicine uh, he thought I was because I was good in science at the time uh and mm-hmm. I remember trying to convince him that uh I wouldn't blame him later if things went wrong if I did choose to pursue design as a career and even at that age, we actually shook hands at the end of that conversation. He signed the uh, release uh, letter for me. And um, later, years he reminded me of that conversation. Um, and wow. I'd say, yeah, I'd say it was at the age of 15, really, that uh, that decision was made. Mm-hmm. And maybe the determination to succeed, not to let my dad down, because I'm the first one, uh, maybe just mm-hmm. to add, um, mm-hmm. and I have 11 siblings. Uh, maybe my parents believed that uh, we are cheaper by the dozen. Um, so being being a firstborn, I, I, I needed to um, have peace in the knowledge that I my dad gave me the best counsel he had and that I wouldn't let him down. Mm-hmm. And, and he, on the other hand, wanted to make sure as a firstborn that I didn't falter because then the others would at least um, have some uh, point of direction when once, once they started looking at their own careers. So that was a conversation and I I give credit to my dad for uh, being bold enough or trusting enough to say, okay, if you you are going to um, tell me that you will take full responsibility even as a young teenager and you will not blame me at some point for not giving you the right guidance, then I'm good with it. So that was Mm. the conversation we had.
0: You have lectured and you've been a teacher in so many countries. What experiences have you met from students about them choosing to study design and considering the the ideas and the, considering the ideas that people have around the whole concept of studying design or design-related uh, careers?
2: Mm, thanks. What I've uh, witnessed is that um, students on average, particularly design students, seem to have an internal motivation, which helps. Mm. Uh, but... Between the different fields of design, uh, there's degrees of complexity that uh, where a lecturer needs to be a lot more hands on, uh, particularly industrial design, because of the equipment and the uh, tools that are needed. Uh, mm-hmm. But on average, I find uh, right across the world that the average design student is quite highly motivated. Uh, mm-hmm. In Europe, I found that the uh, emphasis was on self discovery and self expression, which I found quite interesting. And um, I kind of um, uh, phrase that uh, after what uh, John Sucker mentioned as design after survival. And in developing countries like in India or South Africa or Botswana or Kenya uh, and elsewhere that are even in Brazil, um, I found that it's more of design for survival. So the choice of projects that the students pick up in uh, the so-called developing parts of the world or what I call majority world context. Has to do with uh, survival, you know. Like there's a, a a very explicit need that is being addressed. Whereas mm-hmm. um, my times in, in say places like Norway or even Sweden, I found that uh, students had the luxury of actually experimenting and even um, uh, dreaming, and and therefore it was more designed after survival. So the student uh, was not under any pressure to have to save the world, so to, so to speak. Uh, but they needed to make an original contribution that was created. So I found the, the the fun element, let me put it that way, the playfulness, uh, which I encouraged my students to engage in, was uh, almost by default in uh, places like Europe and the US and Canada, uh, but when it came to uh, places like China or India, Africa, uh, students were quite reserved. The second reason I think that happened is not just the cultural element, but also the Technological advantage that many uh, students in the developing part of the uh, the developed parts of the world have. Um, mm. A lot of times, our students have to share equipment in, in developing countries, uh, or they have a limited uh, window in which they can access equipment or software. And so mm. they, they really uh, have a very perfunctory way of engaging with the, the task. So they do what needs to be done, almost a bare minimum. Uh, whereas the students who have access to good equipment, sometimes having their own software, which gives them much more freedom. They get hmm. to be more um, relaxed and therefore more experimental. Uh, and therefore I, I think the play element that I mentioned, fun, fo- form follows fun kind of thing. Hmm.
1: Uh, I love, I love that because, you know, we, we talk about form following function. But I like that, you know, you, we should also think about how form follows fun. You know, as you were talking, Professor um, uh, Eunice and I have uh, both reflected on our own sort of pathways to pursuing our careers in design and architecture, and also had the chance to speak to a few other African uh, designers. And it's a common thread we all have is around the ages of 16 to 17, we had to really make these tough decisions around mm-hmm. What career pathway we were we needed to 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 start thinking about um, um, pursuing in the future, and and for you it involved having a, a really <laughs> uh, powerful conversation with your dad and even shaking on it, and and for some of us, I you know I don't even know I knew exactly what architecture or design was, but but I know I had a mentor who told me at twelve years old, you're good at math and you're good at art. You become an architect, right? And so, as I as I sit down and reflect on that experience at that age, it makes me wonder where are the opportunities of how uh, possibilities in the fields of design can be um, presented can be presented to 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 young African students or even other um other young um people in the in other developing nations what are how else can we present design beyond us getting to design through fine art woodworking technical drawing because i think even as you were saying uh people in the developing world have a technological advantage but in i know like in uganda when we think about technology or anything to do with designing through tech you think of engineering you know you don't really think of design in that context or this idea of design for survival so i guess I, i would just love to have a Uh, uh, a little discussion with you and hear from you if you have any ideas of how else we can present design as a pathway for for young people at that age because we are making, we have to make these decisions at such an early age
2: Yeah that's a really uh, good point because I think that um, one of the professions that I've admired very uh, much since uh, I came of age is uh, the field of, of, of law, and uh, I found that uh, they build in this aspect of pro bono uh, work as part of their professional development. Maybe I'd like to challenge the design fields, and that includes urban planning and architecture and uh, industrial design and other design disciplines, to actually think about uh, giving something back to communities. And it could be also in the form of uh, you know uh, doing outreach to high schools, having Expos or what we'd call open house or open day, uh, where young people can come and see what happens in design studios or architectural studios um, so that they can actually uh, job shadow and see what happens. Uh, when we have exports, we need to have professionals uh, in those fields also available to show people what they actually do and to demystify our profession because a lot of it is hidden in jargon and um, uh, a lot of uh, Technical, uh, you know, speak which people don't quite en- uh, understand. The other thing which is done, and we've just started something recently in Kenya called Design TV, is is uh, to actually start uh, creating programming that shows people what design or uh, does for society and what designers actually do. Uh, and when I say design, I'm using the broad definition of design, including mm-hmm. architecture, urban design. Yeah. And uh, we we found that all design professions. Uh, irrespective of what the final product is, are uh, really problem-solving profession, And so, if yes. you take people to the processes and educate them on what really the problems we try to solve are in terms of complexity, mm-hmm. uh, you'll find that people engage a lot more than presenting finished drawings or finished uh, models and so on. So, we, we're, we're looking at, at, at uh, creating programming we started already. Uh, that helps people understand and demystify our profession. And hopefully this would uh, work not just for young people, but also for fellow professionals. There's a lot of engineers or doctors who don't know why you need a professional architect to do something. Uh, Sometimes a civil engineer wants to say, hey, I'll do the structure, so I don't don't really need an architect or interior designer. But they need to understand that there's a very um, clear sensitivity and sensibility that those professions bring and that we actually work together uh, in a collaborative fashion, it it is for all of us to actually collaborate. So I I think that would help. And maybe better now, uh, there's a lovely African proverb that says that um, children who are born on top of an anthill take a shorter time to mature. Uh, So those children that are born today are fortunate in that they have found people like us who struggle to find out what our professions actually meant, uh, now they can start with role models and uh, uh, design heroes, if I can put it that way, who they can relate to. Uh, that was not the case when we were growing up. We wouldn't have been able to identify a designer in our community, but we knew doctors, teachers, uh, lawyers, and occasional accountants. Uh, now at least the young people can say that. The other thing we need to do is to make sure there's robust
0: your thoughts around the economic aspect, but also that I know you've mentioned it with the, the pro- professional practices could invite students or into their practice, but uh, what do you think about the economic part and both on the students' level, but also the firms, the design firms and the design offices maybe do not have the budget to to spend on this.
2: Yeah, I, I I agree. I think um, we need to come up with more creative models uh, because mm-hmm. uh, the resources uh, or even financial ones are uh, actually a barrier to entry into the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is we need to look at even uh, the uh, bursary systems that exist in our universities, particularly the public universities even in Africa, that tend to give uh, students the same amount irrespective of their Uh, career choice. So for example, Mm. if I'm doing political science, I get the same bursary as someone who's doing engineering, architecture, or medicine, and those are very expensive uh, in terms of the resources that one needs to to survive. Mm. I'm not suggesting that uh, political science shouldn't get good money, but I, I witnessed when I was a student how much they were able to save because most of the books were in the library, and all they did was buy a few bits of stationery and they were ready while we had to buy a lot of equipment and, and materials just to, you know, get through our courses. So I think that needs to have an economic uh, value added uh, mm-hmm. because the professions are mm-hmm. indeed expensive and that's a genuine uh, barrier to entry. Secondly, maybe the uh, professions, if they're organized, the pro- professional body could also start offering bursaries and scholarships to uh, promising students in their own field. I've seen that happen, particularly in the mm-hmm. fields of law, where the Law Society of Kenya, for example, uh, offers a bursary to the top students, uh, which allows those particular students then to have a much easier uh, passage to university. So maybe our professions also need to start to give something back and help um, fledgling uh, talent. Uh, and maybe that will help. Also, the government could uh, zero rate uh, some of the taxes on materials for some of our, our, our professions uh, because mm-hmm. the same thing when, it, when you open a dental practice, you have to invest in a lot of equipment. And if it's not even uh, tax rebate, then it becomes a barrier to entry. So in the same way, I'd argue that maybe architects, designers, uh, and those other professions that have to do quite a bit with expensive software and equipment, also, could have uh, preferential uh, rebate uh, so that they can actually have tax exempt um, uh, equipment. And that would also open up the possibility of getting good equipment as opposed to fake uh, stuff and uh, knockoffs. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, thank you so much for that reflection. Uh, I want to switch gears a little bit to catch up on, um, on your own professional practice. So, as an educator, a designer, a researcher, you've studied and traveled. Um, to so many countries in Kenya, you've studied in Kenya, the USA, India, South Africa. Uh, w- what does it mean to be a transdisciplinary industrial designer?
2: <laughs> okay, I, 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 I've been caught <laughs> out. Uh, I should not use words if I don't <laughs> put my money where my mouth is. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yes, it's transdisciplinarity essentially uh, means that you collaborate with people who are outside your own uh, core discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, So the transdisciplinarity is actually that you're open to creating new knowledge or co-creating new knowledge with other professionals. And uh, the other point which one needs to look at is that one should not be shy um, to express ignorance in something, because then the next person is happy to share and explain something. So I think uh, that would be my my, my take on uh, that particular subject. So you create, you co create new knowledge with other professionals outside of your own discipline. Uh, and in any case, I find people who are outside my own discipline very interesting uh, because mm. uh, there are things that I wouldn't know mm-hmm. unless someone else told me. So that's why I would mm-hmm. describe myself as a transdisciplinary industrial designer.
1: What 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 are your thoughts on um on what that sort of methodology and mode of learning uh says about the way we currently teach designers or architects? Because I know at least in my on education, I uh I found that I was working solely with designers in a single discipline. And then I think um well in graduate school I was still pursuing design within a single discipline and our school was actually um based in the school of art and which is, I think, common for a lot of design schools um, in the U.S. But now I teach in a liberal arts university where design and architecture with studio art that also includes fashion design and communication design sort of speak to each other. So still, as a discipline, we learn in a somewhat multidisciplinary way, But because we're in a liberal arts school, we are encouraged to seek out collaborations or talk to um, other disciplines, whether it's like in social work or public health. So our students are taking classes across. And I wonder what your thoughts are on on, um, what that experience you've had being a transdisciplinary designer, being at the fringes of multiple professions, says about how maybe we can reimagine design education in an African context.
2: No, I, I totally agree. I think uh, the idea of blended or hybrid um, environments is actually good for everyone. Um, i found that even the other disciplines appreciate hearing more about design. For example, if you take a topic like design thinking, i found that um, non-designers seem to be far more excited about uh, design thinking than designers themselves. It's like designers mm-hmm. just do it. You don't even need to uh, articulate what to do now that we've been forced to discuss it uh, people say I-, yes. I-, I want to also be innovative and i want to be a problem solver so i think it helps when designers are forced to articulate some of their own black box thinking um, and that actually expands the scope of those who appreciate our profession and uh, there's so many interlinks because knowledge is, is, is uh, permeable i mean the, the membrane is very permeable we we cannot in the world we live in today uh, Get too precious about our silos. So the idea of uh, you know to not, you know knowledge silos that should be totally debunked because we need to speak to other people and we need to mm-hmm. learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am totally committed to the idea that uh, even designers, uh, even within our staff, we try to get as many non-designers as possible. So we've got almost like an 80-20 uh, split where 80% are from the core disciplines of design and 30% come from other fields uh, which, which help enrich our programming. Um, the reason I say this is because in reality, when we get into the big, wide world, we meet those people again. So it helps for us to uh, establish some dialogue with them and get to understand uh, some of the core principles. And I think as one goes higher, as you mentioned, uh, Panina, with the uh, graduate school, it becomes more philosophical and more epistemological then you want to, you find actually there's a lot in common. Uh, some of the theories and philosophies we use mm-hmm. are found in other disciplines as opposed to the methodology we use within our core disciplines. So it's in our interest to, to expand our our uh, vocabulary, maybe that's a good way of saying it, that uh, mm-hmm. by, by talking to other professionals we expand our, our, our lexicon and, and in so doing we then are able to even communicate, because those same professions tend to your clients as well. When you understand the way they think, uh, then you can also articulate yourself better and uh, reach them in a way that's uh, much more effective. I believe at the core, every design discipline is about storytelling, uh, Mm. and and, uh, so it's very important that uh, we have authentic stories to tell and we need the vocabulary to tell the story in an accessible manner so people can actually understand
0: uh, there's a lot to learn from when we talk to people and invite them to the conversation, even if we are the ones design, designing for them. Because I mean, that is the re- reality when we meet clients is that our job is actually to listen to what they say, actually spend more time listening to what they say, ask them how they are using products. I'm, I'm sure. And with design thinking, if I have, if I uh, have understood it, in a, in a correct way, also many businesses actually are using it to to see how they can better the products they have, uh, how they can how they can improve many things, and those are all those are opportunities for designers. I think by ignoring or by not being open to collaborations or or interdisciplinary exchange of knowledge, I think we designers and architects are also missing out on opportunities. Business opportunities, but also, as you said, opportunities to grow. Indeed, uh, yeah, I
2: think it's, uh, we live in an interconnected world, and um, the challenge is there's a lot of information out there, but not as much knowledge. And so, for me, knowledge is applied; it's the application of information in a way that is useful to people. So we, we need to to be open, and um, we also need to not be too precious about. Uh, what we think we know. I think a little bit of uh, professional humility is helpful. Uh, mm. That every discipline is valid, so everyone has a valid story. And, mm. and by uh, opening up to their stories, you're just uh, being an empathic human being. And I think empathy is uh, the core, uh, 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 can I say, criteria for, for being effective in design thinking. Uh, it is, mm. like you said correctly, okay. you're uh, listening. And understanding uh, the other person's uh, perspective, and uh, there's a phrase that my friends and I use, uh, which we coined. says basically speaking to their listening. So we speak to the listening of the, the person that you're, you're dealing with. Uh, Mandela said it very well. Nelson Mandela said that if you, if I speak to you, for example, in, in, in English right now, right? Um, I'm speaking to to your mind because it's a very rational and logical language. But if I speak to you in your mother tongue, in your own language, your language, not my language, I'm speaking to your heart. So mm-hmm. maybe in the same way as designers, if we learn to speak the language of our other professionals or even mm-hmm. the languages of our clients uh, and speak less mm-hmm. in jargon and more in an empathic uh, and humane manner, then we will actually get through. We'll find that there's a lot of commonality
0: you're a founding member of the network uh, of african designers nad and um this this is um an international network focusing on design within industrially developing or majority world con- context um what would you describe design how would you describe design in africa how is the environment how is the design climate generally State of design in the Africa. state of design on architecture in Africa. Wow, that's a that's
2: a really big one. Yeah, you, you yes. said correctly that we started something called the Network of Africa Designers. It, it was actually Africa. We wanted to be sure we're talking about the context and the place, not the people. Uh, mm. And then it was also Africa with yeah. a K, which we can have a conversation about yes. at some other point. Um, mm. Is Africa is massive, you know, with 1.3 billion people, 55 countries, and uh, some 2,200 languages. It's a massive place. And uh, we found that uh, because of our various experiences, design, which as a word or as a concept originally came from Italy, uh, mainly came through Europe. And and many of us who studied architecture and design always referenced the Bauhaus, um, because that was where modern architecture and modern design Um, Actually came from. So, if you speak to someone say in Senegal, uh, you can uh, you know get by past the language barrier of in or her speaking French and yourself speaking say English. You find that a lot of the the fundamental uh, knowledge base is is in common. We all seem to know about the different periods in in uh, European um, art history or architectural history or design history. So there we have a lot in common. But when you start to look at how different countries are embracing their local content, this is where the difference comes in. So, for example, a country like Ghana, I find Ghana fascinating uh, because uh, they have a rich uh, tradition of the Kente cloth and their Dinkra symbols and many other, you know, vernacular expressions of design that they've embraced, rehashed and modernized and uh, now using it as part of their identity. If you go to South Africa, among the Debele, for example, uh, you find very beautiful you know, colors and, uh, and fabrics and materials. And South Africa also has a number, including Zulu. Also, I um, mentioned Debele as well. So in Kenya, it would be maybe something to do with mass ideas. Uh, in uh, Uganda, the bark cloth is still a very important uh, material, particularly like now that we are speaking about biodegradability and uh, sustainability. So it's, it's the adoption or interrogation of local content that varies from different parts of Africa. There are places where designers are very confident and proud, like now Morocco has really come up and it's doing very well in that sense. And then there are other places where designers are not particularly well-respected and they are more or less the Cinderella of the creative field. Um, and so there the designers sometimes seek affirmation by trying to make their mark in Europe and then come back and say, I told you guys I was good, now you have to, you know, take me seriously. Uh, but there are places where people already know that design is important. So after we created NAD, and that was back in April of 1999, uh, just to give you a sense of uh, my own sense of history. Um, recently, we started something called the Pan-African Design Institute, which is a, a virtual... Um, platform where we have continental representation. In fact, right now, as you speak, we are looking at different uh, flags around Africa and the meanings of those flags and their colors. So we, we're trying to, to create databases or directories, if you may, of uh, accessible information for the entire continent, but respecting the individual uh, country and region-specific uh, expressions that are coming through. So. I, I've often fought this notion of African design because I think Africa is far too diverse and complex to have a unique design. We, we don't usually talk about European design. We talk about Italian or Scandinavian. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So why would we say African when Africa is much larger than many of these uh, subcontinents? In fact, the whole of Western Europe is the size of the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. So if, if, if we want to talk about design in Africa, it might be respectful to speak about the specific countries or even the specific cultures. Because when you talk about South Africa, the Bele, the Oza, the uh, Zulu, so it might be even helpful to get to that level of uh, granular detail. But having said that, the stage of design in Africa is very healthy. Um, hmm. The new generation of designers are very confident. Uh, We've seen the Wakanda effect. Uh, Or the flat panter effect, for lack of a better phrase, uh, where African designers are coming of age and they're being uh, feted and celebrated globally, Um, and I think this is helping uh, raise the confidence. I think ours was more a crisis of confidence than a crisis of creativity, but now we have come of age, and I'm very happy to see that as a a growing area. And um, so our creative confidence is growing. That is the state of design in Africa.
0: Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Mugendi. This is part one of our interview with Professor Mugendi. Please join us for part two of this conversation in our next episode. In part two, we talk about Professor Mugendi's work and uh, he also shares some lessons from his personal and professional experiences. Thank you very much for joining us. Till next time. Bye bye. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, Please join us for more conversations and interviews with African educators, creatives, architects, urban planners, and designers as they share their knowledge and experiences about practicing in Africa and the diaspora.
1: Remember to subscribe, leave a review, or share this podcast with other people that might be interested in this content. Thank you for joining us today.